I am swimming on the edge of a delightful dream when something wakes me up. At first, I cannot tell what was the culprit. So I look around my room. I see that I am the only one awake. The other children sleep like logs. I wish I did. And then I hear it. Thumping. It sounds as if father has risen in the middle of the night to hammer in some nails. That is the only sound those thumps could possibly be, and surely it was coming from their room. But why? Perhaps the bed had broken while they slept and father wanted to fix it so the rest of the night could be passed comfortably. Mother is likely to be quite cross as she wouldn't want to wake us up on a school night. It has stopped now. There are footsteps in the kitchen and I hear the opening of the icebox. Father must be hungry for a midnight snack. Oh, I knew I wasn't the only one who dreamed of an extra slice of pie sometimes. This is a strange night indeed. I will tell the others this over breakfast. It is sure to get a laugh. The footsteps are coming towards our room now, and so I quick pretend to be asleep. But there is something strange about these footsteps. They are heavy and slow. I know the sound of my father's gate on the floorboards, and this is not that. This is someone else. I have misjudged the situation. I slide noiselessly off the bed and crawl underneath. A sliver of light hits the floor. He leads with an axe, and it is then that I remember my brother sleeping in the bed I had just abandoned. I did not take him with me, and now I will live to regret that for any amount of life I am allowed to keep. I hear the same sound my foolish sleep-addled brain thought was a hammer earlier, and watch the blood run from the bedsheets tapping in a pool beside me on the floor. I cover my own mouth to stifle the scream, but I fear it is not enough. I see the axe head touch the floor slick with blood. I notice the thin beam of light from the hall is touching my nightgown, and I know it's over. I see his boots, and then slowly, I watch him drop to his knees. A face is surely following, and I know it will be the last face I ever see. It is dark, but there is something about the pair of eyes that catch me in my hiding spot. I know you, I say in utter disbelief before he draws the axe to his shoulder, and I think to myself, this is the end. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. I know it was successful. Who was it? <laughs> what did she say? That's just, I just write random pieces I in the beginning. Know. You never get the answer. It's like that horrible, oh, why man. is a raven like a writing desk riddle? Why? Doesn't have an answer. Oh. It's just something that was written 
without a punchline. Awful. <laughs> I know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. <laughs> hey, Beans. <laughs> We're back for more axe murders this week. Sweet. Yeah. I thought I was excited. <laughs> I should have called it Axtober. Ooh. Yeah. Look at that. I know. It would have been so good, but now October is almost over. <laughs> Just like retroactively apply that to October 4th. Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't have a whole lot in the news section today. If you would like access to our monthly mini podcast, 30-minute horror stories, live campfire stories, discounts on our merch, Invitations to special events, a little gift from us, then ask your internet to look up We Would Be Dead on Patreon. And for just a tiny monthly donation, you will get all of that and the distinction of being our favorite people in the whole world. Yes. You know, Leslie, yeah. I'd really like to make it to Halloween looking my best. Yeah, yeah, me too. Right? It's, I like to glow on Halloween. Me too. We only get one a year. Only one. You know? And I'm just not feeling like the glittery ghoul I could be. I feel you, girl. Right? Mm-hmm. How's your skin doing? It's um, a little crackly. Yeah. Has the baby's blood been replenished for you? Um, It was a couple weeks ago, right. but I had to go through a lot of it this week. Yeah. You know what could end all of our troubles? Tell me. It's, a, it's right on the tip of my tongue. It's a, it's a, I'm never sure what you're going to say. V word. Oh, I don't know any V words. Validation. Oh, wait, validation. There it is. You do know a V word. I do. Yes, that's it. If you like what you've been hearing, but maybe you don't have any extra cash to spare, we totally get that. Here's what you can do. Totally for free. Head on over over to Apple Podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a moment, but it gives us the very life force it takes to move ever onward and upward. And we love a life force. We sure do love a life force. Oh, and don't forget, next week, you guys, we are taking off. Oh, yeah. Leslie and I need a moment to catch our breaths after this awesome Axtober madness. <laughs> what, what? <laughs> so you can take the time to catch up on any episodes you may have missed, chat with your fellow fiends on the Facebook group, leave us some kind reviews, and look for my inevitable TikToks from Salem. Don't worry, though. We will be back on the 10th of November, refreshed and ready to tackle the worst and weirdest things we can find. Great. Right. Leslie's a little scared. <laughs> She's supposed to be, though. It's I'm fine. always scared. <laughs> oh, guys, and please don't forget to vote. You can make a difference. Every single one of us counts. Oh, man. Yeah. When By the time come we come back. back. <sighs> <laughs> we both just had a moment. <laughs> Go vote. Everybody vote. Yeah, everybody, please vote in this election. It's so important. We really, really, really want that. This is the easiest voting it is the easiest ever. voting. It was so exciting that we got to just do it by... I liked it. I put it in a ballot box. I want, it, I want this to work because this was great. If it doesn't work, we're in big trouble. Oh, yeah. So... But this is fantastic. I think I think millennials are going to come out, like, real strong this year. I hope so. I'm really excited about it. People that don't normally vote, I just, I'm really excited. So we'll have a lot of, a lot of things to say when we yeah. get back. We're going to be really happy. We're really despondent. So. But we talk about murder, so it'll be great. Either way, it works. Yeah. (laughs) And now, on with the show. As I mentioned before, we have two stories for you this week. 
I will be talking about the Moore family murders in Villisca, Iowa, and Leslie will be covering the Gruber family murders in Hinterkaifeck, Germany. Mine comes first chronologically, so I will start. Okay. Which we didn't discuss beforehand. We didn't. I was wondering. It was a surprise. We talked about everything else in the world. But that. Mine's 1912 and yours is 1922, so. Yes. We'll just go in order. Cool. It was a cool morning in Villisca, Iowa on June 10th, 1912. Mary Peckham rose at 5 a.m., as she did every day, and began her chores. It was a simple life out there in the farmland, but life that Mary and her neighbors loved. Mary washed all her laundry in a manual washing machine in her kitchen and brought it out to hang on the line to dry. While it wasn't hot yet, Mary knew the sun would bring much warmer temperatures as the day wore on. She looked around after the washing had been hung and saw the town around her waking up. She hoped that she might catch her neighbor, Mrs. Moore, outside as well, and that they might have a pleasant conversation. Normally, the Moores rose early as well, as there were chores to do and young children and livestock to tend to. It was a busy household. Josiah Moore was a prominent local businessman, and his wife, Sarah, was well-liked and active in the community. They had four children, Herman, who was 11, Mary Catherine, who was 10, Arthur Boyd, who was 7, and Paul Vernon, who was just five. All the children were well-liked and frequently had friends over the house to play. In fact, that evening, Mary Catherine had two girlfriends spending the night. They were going to the Children's Day service with the Moore family, and the girls thought it would be safer for them to return home with the Moores than to walk all the way home after dark. Mary knew this because she had overheard the telephone conversation between Mr. Moore and whoever she assumed to be the girl's parents or an authority figure on their end. Mary liked the Moore family quite a lot and felt fortunate to live next door to them. So when the household did not rise as usual, Mary thought it to be quite strange and grew concerned. But it was still early and she supposed that they could have slept in. Mary knew that there was a Children's Day service and celebration at the Presbyterian Church that night and that the Moors were all set to attend. Mrs. Moore had helped organize all the activities that evening and the whole family seemed quite excited to go. Now, I have looked up exactly what Children's Day is and it seems to be a service designed specifically for young children, most often preschoolers, to get them all hyped up about church. Yeah. Did you have Children's Day? Do you I know did. what it is? I did. It was great. Oh, really? Yeah, I played a character and because we did like a play oh, on the like on the altar. Nice. And it was really fun. And I actually got to use like a Godzilla mask. Oh my god, I love it. I kind of forget who I was supposed to be, but you I was Godzilla like Godzilla in be church. Monsterish <laughs> thing from the Bible. I kind I forget what it was. But yeah, I was I went hardcore. I love that it. was my that was my acting career. <laughs> 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 I got to wear sweatpants too, so that was exciting. Uh, win win. <laughs> win win situation. So as you have confirmed, there would be games and music and a, a play with Godzilla. And other children would help organize, like the older children, I'm sorry, would help organize and carry out the service for the younger children. Yes. For whatever reason, this was and continues to be a great big deal. And honestly, it's really cute and probably fun if the church doesn't give you hives like it does to me. <laughs> well, if you had Children's Day, maybe great. I would like it more. Yeah. There you go. It was fun. We love Jesus. Jesus loves me. Yeah. This I know. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. What I cannot explain, however, is why on God's green earth it took place at 8 o'clock at night. 
Mm. Did you? Was yours late at night? No, it was like a 10 a.m. Right? <laughs> because that's when the Moore family attended this service, and they were said to have left the church at approximately 9.30. They all walked home together and arrived home at around 10, which for a family who routinely rose at 5 a.m. was pretty late. Wow. Yeah. But Mary knew all of this, and so she wasn't sounding the alarm bells immediately. Okay. By 7 a.m., Mary noticed the Moors still hadn't risen, and she began to get worried. She walked over to their house to see if there was any activity therein, and she saw that all the windows had been covered, all the doors were locked, and not a sound was coming from the inside. Not only that, but the Moors' livestock had not yet been let out of their barns for the day, so Mary let the chickens out into the yard before she began knocking on all the doors. No response. Mary knocked harder and called for the Moors to answer her, but was again only met with dead silence. Mary knew something was wrong and ran back to her house to telephone Ross Moore, Mr. Moore's brother. She spoke to his wife, Jessie, asking if anything had happened that would have taken the Moors out of town overnight. And Jessie replies that nothing of the sort had happened, but Ross would be over with a key shortly to check on them. In the meanwhile, one of Mr. Moore's employees arrives to take care of the livestock as he did every day. He had not heard from his employer either, but went about his duties. Shortly after Mary called, Ross Moore arrived. He and Mary made their way around the house, knocking on and checking all of the doors and windows. All were locked from the inside, and no one responded to their knocks or calls. Ross had a key to the house, and this bit of information, like, apparently he saves it for this point. I don't know why. I mean, I I mentioned it earlier, but that was my own doing. They always are like, he came over, and then they checked all the doors and windows, and then he said, oh, I have a key. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, why wouldn't you go right for the front door? Sometimes you just forget. I don't know. I would want to get to my family as quickly as possible, and the neighbor lady is right there telling you she already did all of that other stuff. She's like, yeah, 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 I knocked on all the doors and yelled, why are we doing it again? (laughs) And you have a key. Yeah, cut to the chase, man. Come on, Ross. I know. Ross is always the worst. He's always the worst. (laughs) Ross opened the front door and walked in. Mary Peckham stayed on the front porch. The house was completely silent and looked undisturbed. Ross walked through the tidy kitchen and into the parlor. Everything was still normal and seemed to be in its place. Next, Ross opened the door to the downstairs bedroom off the parlor, which was used for guests. He expected to find it empty, but instead he saw something else. The bed appeared to have two occupants, both of whom had bed covers and clothing pulled up over their heads. The covers were dark, completely saturated with blood in the places where their heads would be. An arm dangled limply off the side of the bed, and that was enough for Ross. He ran from the house immediately, telling Mary to call the local police because something awful had happened. Mm. This is their uncle, and he hadn't even found people he knew. And he immediately ran out of the house. Wow. Ross is always the worst. But that's good. He didn't... He did call the damn cops. And he didn't, like, tamper with the crime scene. Oh, other people do later. I know, but at least he didn't. Yeah, he didn't. That's true. But also, I feel like if it was my brother's house, I wouldn't be like, here are two unidentified people, and then I'm going to leave. I would be like, I have to see what's going on upstairs. No, I'd be like, would you leave? (laughs) (laughs) I don't need to see anymore. Like, what? You just saw that. You'd be like, let me go upstairs. I would. I'd be like, where are my family? Because those weren't his family members. Those were the two other girls. No, I would call the cops. (laughs) 
<laughs> we were on opposite ends, but that's what Ross did. He I called would the damn cops. nearby, but I would call the cops. There you go. <laughs> Officer Henry Horton arrived shortly after the call was made and went to investigate the scene. He moved through the house methodically and emerged to tell Ross Moore and Mary Peckham that everyone in the house was dead. All murdered in their beds. Horton did not hear a who. He did not. He heard a who. Oh, oh. <laughs> One of us always takes it too far. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I think we balance it out, so okay. it's okay. <laughs> he said he found all the members of the Moore family, plus a little girl and a woman. Or rather, he actually said he didn't say a woman. He said a little girl and a big one. Oh. Ugh. I hope I am not described. You're not. (laughs) That's rude and I hate it. The big one died. (laughs) That's awful. No, absolutely not. But that's what he said he found in the downstairs bedroom. He said he could not identify these two, but Mary Peckham suspected that they were the two girls Mary Catherine Moore had hosted as her guest, Lena and Ina Schellinger. Lena was just 12, but apparently developed early. She was the big one. I hear you, girl. Awful. No one should ever say that. (laughs) Shortly after the police arrived, word about the murders began to circulate through Villisca. Because in a small town, word spreads fast, and people began to show up at the house to see for themselves what had happened. As many as 100 people paraded through the crime scene by the time the National Guard showed up at around noon. So in just a few hours, over 100 people had gone through this house. And obviously some people took things, some people touched things, some people... This is wild. It's super wild. So the National Guard shows up around noon to stop all the insanity and preserve the crime scene's integrity as much as they possibly could, which is not much at this point for the coroner. Now, the coroner at this point in time, it's 1912, is a lot more important than I ever thought a coroner could ever be. Mm -hmm. They do everything. Yep. Dr. Lindquist, the coroner, didn't arrive until, wait for it, 10 p.m. Well, that's better than my story. Oh, no. Oh, that's true. It is. (laughs) This man had come from a neighboring town and, to my knowledge, had absolutely no excuse for being late. Like, they already found these people. It was oh, just waiting wow. for the coroner. And he They're was like, in the next town over. Ooh, I gotta get up and have my coffee and do a whole day's worth of shit before I come over and look at your murders. When he got there, Dr. Lindquist, but I'd rather call him Dr. Nonsensically Tardy, took complete stock of the crime scene. And this is what he found as he moved through the house. In the first floor bedroom, he indeed found two girls in the guest bed. As suspected, they were Mary Catherine's friends, Ina and Lena Stillinger. The girls had been bludgeoned beyond recognition about the head, and the room was a bloody mess as a result. Blood spatter was on the ceiling and walls, and blood pooled all over the bed. Ina appeared to have been asleep when she was killed, but Lena was found halfway down the bed with her arm over her head, as though she had tried to escape and put up a fight. Lena's underwear had also been removed and her nightdress was pulled up. A smear of blood was on the inside of her right knee, giving the impression that some kind of forced sexual act had taken place. The girls' heads had been covered post-mortem with bedclothes and an old gray coat. It appeared the killer had treated them post-mortem with great care. The girls' clothing was still folded, and the murder weapon, an axe, leaned against the far wall. The blade had been cleaned, but the handle still had blood and hair clinging to it in places. The window shades were drawn, and the mirror had been covered hastily with an old skirt. Now, I don't have this written in, but we did speak about this before. In that day and age, it was believed that if you had 
dead bodies in your house, which was not uncommon because funerals were held in home back then. You had to cover the mirrors because if the dead body's soul came out of their body and saw their reflection, they would be scared and they would end up staying in this realm instead of crossing over. Mm. So it was common practice in a Victorian home to cover all the mirrors. And you'll see this in any kind of like Victorian mourning practices or like pictures. Um, As it became more commonplace, they would sell black crepe that you would drape over mirrors. And um, there are a lot of people who suspect that the killer covered the mirrors so that he wouldn't have to see himself after the deed. Mm. But in my opinion, it was kind of, it was like a superstition. And he would have done it so that they wouldn't have gotten stuck in this world and maybe ratted him out. Or just like mocking it. Or or mocking the... Could be. I, I feel like... It was superstitious. I feel like it was because it's very hastily done. It's clothing thrown over it and stuff. It's not like a careful draping. Okay. And I feel like that was done so like, oh shit, better cover all my bases. Right. That's just my opinion on this. A kerosene lamp was found at the foot of the bed. The lamp's chimney had been removed and the wick turned down. So the chimney is like that top piece on like a hurricane lamp that funnels the light and the smoke upward. It was unclear at first why this might have been there. A small piece of keychain was found on the floor. Also in the far corner in the room was a two-pound frozen parcel of bacon wrapped in a dish towel. I can't. Why bacon? You just need a weird uncooked snack with your murder, then you abandon it when you remember it's frozen bacon? Hmm. Maybe he took it out and then thought about the time. <laughs> Maybe. Like, eh. I always think, like, did he think he was going to bludgeon them with the bacon? Right. But he would have already have had the, had the axe. We'll get back to that. <laughs> Remember this, though, because headed towards it's, it's headed towards a callback much, much later in the podcast. <laughs> so just don't forget it. The murderer had used the blunt end of the axe to bludgeon the girls to death. Again, why this method? He or she had an axe, one blow to the throat with the sharp side, and they're done. But right. they chose to use the blunt end and bash their head in. Dr. Lateness, I mean Linquist, then moved through the rest of the rooms in the home. First, he went back to the kitchen where he found a bowl of water water swirled with blood on the kitchen table and a plate of uneaten food laid out beside it. Again, why didn't you eat your snack? You just made this plate? Was it an offering to the dead family gods? An idea that didn't pan out? Food that he decided he didn't like? What? Was his eyes bigger than his stomach, and this was just like his second plate? He already ate some and made some more. I guess, maybe. Maybe. I don't know why this bothers me so much. The plate of uneaten food, uneaten food does, though, and I'm always like, why is it there? <laughs> he wasn't startled out. <laughs> Who can say? No one. No one can say because they never solved this damn crime. Ugh. The parlor uh, and the closet in the parlor offered no further evidence. Heading upstairs, Dr. Lindquist first encountered the bedroom of Josiah and Sarah Moore. He found both of them beaten to death in the head with an axe. The act had occurred as they laid sleeping in their bed. Josiah had gotten the worst of it. The killer used both the sharp and blunt end of the axe on both him and his wife Sarah, but Josiah received an estimated 30 blows, which was by far the most. Wow. Yeah, that's way overkill. The axe had hit the ceiling during the bloody act on its upswing and taken notches out of the wood. There was blood everywhere, on the walls, on the floor, on the ceiling. One of Sarah's shoes had been left on one side of the bed. It appeared that during the killing, blood had run off the bed and filled the shoe, and then later it had been knocked over. Dr. Lindquist came to this conclusion because the shoe lay on its side with blood spilling from it. 
Mm. He theorized that the killer had murdered Sarah and Josiah and then came back to them later for a few final blows. Oh. Yeah. Both Josiah and Sarah had their heads covered post-mortem and their mirror had been covered with a cloth. A kerosene lamp had also been left at the foot of their bed. The chimney had been removed and the wick turned down. And now, Dr. Lindquist figured out why. This would have provided the killer with dim, ambient light. Light that would not have been enough for his sleep-soggy victims to make him out, but enough for him to kill by. The chimney was later found under the dresser. Lastly, Dr. Lindquist entered the Moore children's bedroom. I hate this part. The same bloody scene awaited him there. All four of the Moore children lie dead in their beds. The children had suffered the same excessive head bludgeoning. All of them had their heads covered post-mortem, and the mirror in the room had been covered with an old piece of clothing. The shades on the windows were drawn, and garish red blood spatter painted the room. The axe had taken chinks out of the slanted ceiling on its backswing. Lastly, Dr. Linquist entered the attic. There, he discovered two spent cigarettes. It was his supposition that the killer had entered the house while the Moors were at church and hid in the attic until everyone was fast asleep. Then, snuck down into the house to kill everyone and have, like, weird fake snacks. Oh. Yeah. Others say that there was a back window left unlatched, but I don't buy into this because Ross Moore and Mary Peckham claim in all of the reports to have checked all the windows and did not report one to be unlatched, so I'm not sure where this theory comes from. Dr. Linquist estimated everyone's time of death was between midnight and 5 a.m., so good job, Chief. That's a huge window of time. There was no smell of decay or antiseptic in the air. All the window shades in the house had been drawn, and two windows that lacked shades were covered with old clothing that belonged to the Moors. So the killer had made sure that every window was obscured before he went about his acts. Okay. I say he because every suspect is a man. But we don't know in the end. Maybe it was a she. From all this evidence, the theory composed was this. As I mentioned, the killer entered the house while the Moors attended church and waited for them to come home. After all of them had gone to bed and the noise in the home below had long since ceased, the killer came down the attic stairs and first killed Josiah and Sarah Moore, then their children. After the killer went downstairs to clean up, he discovered the two Schillinger girls asleep in the guest room bed. Then he murdered two of them, the two of them, sorry, and possibly sexually assaulted Lena. After the killings were complete, the killer went back through the house and covered the faces of the deceased, perhaps delivering a few more blows to Josiah and Sarah, and then slipped out into the darkness, never to be found. At the inquest, the coroner called, and for some reason, the coroner does all the questioning. Not the police detectives, not (laughs) attorneys, it's the coroner. I couldn't tell you why, because I've read a lot of old cases and I've never seen this before, but Mm. that's what they said. Fourteen people were questioned at it. Now, I've read the inquest, and it simply confirms a lot of what we already know at this point, and then moves on to a who-the-hell-could-have-possibly-done-this-and-why line of questioning. Most people replied that they had absolutely no idea who could have possibly done this. The Moors were well-liked, successful, and kind people. Most of them thought that they had no enemies whatsoever, but the inquest pressed on, a few, and a few names were revealed. First... Someone mentioned Sam Moyer, Josiah Moore's brother-in-law, who had claimed he wanted to kill him during an argument. But we've dealt with this before. Yeah. Like, in the throes of an argument, you can be like, I want to kill that guy, and not mean you're actually going to kill that guy. Right. And I feel like this is kind of that situation. And Sam's alibi for the night in question checked out perfectly, and so he was taken off the list as quickly as he appeared. Second, a few people mentioned 
Frank F. Jones, a prominent Villisca resident and Iowa State senator. Josiah Moore worked for Frank Jones at Jones's, quote, implement store. Ooh, he sold implements. For several years until um, Josiah Moore decided to open his own implement store in 1908. Everybody needs implements. It's a big deal. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And never leave home without them. You don't. It's unclear as to what they are exactly, but I mean, I sure have some. Always carry them. (laughs) According to Villisca residents, Frank was extremely upset that Josiah had left his employee, subsequently taking a lot of business from him. Josiah managed to take a very lucrative John Deere dealership with him upon his exit, and this enraged Frank Jones. Josiah was also rumored to have had an affair with Frank's daughter, Donna. But these rumors are completely unsubstantiated. Okay. Detectives suspected that Frank may have hired a man named William Mansfield to carry out the act, which is probably leading you to ask, who the hell is William Mansfield? Yeah. Yeah. Patience, please. We're getting to the suspect roundup. And now the suspect roundup. Oh. We got <laughs> there so, wait so long. <laughs> <laughs> After the inquest, the authorities formed their theories and rounded up their suspects. And there were a lot, way more than there should have been, if you ask me. And we don't have the time to go into all of them. And frankly, they all don't deserve to be explored. There are two serial killers, a reverend, the senator, who we already discussed, and then a bunch of drifters. Mm-hmm. Here we go. The first non-enemy suspects we have is William Mansfield. It is believed that Mansfield was a serial killer because he murdered his wife, infant child, and parents-in-law with an axe two years after the Velisca crimes. Whoa. So he really, he, he did kill people. Okay. He is believed to have committed the axe murders in Paola, Kansas, four days before the Velisca crimes. He was also suspected in the double homicide of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Illinois. Each crime site was accessible by a train, and all murders were carried out in virtually the same manner. Mansfield was released after a special grand jury of Montgomery County refused to indict him on grounds that his alibi checked out. Nine months before the murders at Villisca, a similar case of axe murder occurred in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Two axe murder cases followed in Ellsworth, Kansas and Paola, Kansas. The cases were similar enough to raise the possibility of having been committed by the same person. Other murders reported as possibly being linked to these crimes include the numerous unsolved axe murders along the Southern Pacific Railroad from 1911 to 1912, the unsolved axe man of New Orleans killings, which Leslie covered in a campfire story, as well as several other such murders during this time period. So there are a lot of murders like this that happen, and authorities and detectives are quick to want to link them, and I can see why. Yeah. The murders in Colorado Springs were closely related in execution to those in the Moore house. Nine months before the Villisca murders, H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, and Mrs. A.J. Burnham were found dead in their Colorado Springs home, murdered with an axe. The Colorado Springs police found it difficult to believe that the same person could perpetrate a similar crime in a city. As in the Villisca murders, bed sheets were used to cover the windows to prevent a passerby from looking in. At the Moore house, the murderer hung aprons and skirts to cover the window, so basically the same thing. As in the murders in Villisca, the murderer in Colorado Springs wiped the blood off his axe and covered the heads of the victim with bedclothes. These are all really specific things. Yeah. That don't just randomly happen. Mansfield was also the prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson, who suggested that he was a cocaine-addicted serial killer. (laughs) I don't know where the cocaine came in, but all right. 
According to contemporary news, Wilkerson believed Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in in Blue Island, Illinois, on July 5th, 1914. And that's the killing two years after the Villisca murders that we mentioned a few minutes ago. The axe murders committed in Paola, Kansas, four days before the Villisca murders, and the murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Illinois. So he said, "I'm, I'm, I'm calling it. This guy did all of these things. According to Wilkerson's investigation, all of the murders were committed in precisely the same manner, indicating that the same man probably committed them. Wilkerson stated that he could prove that Mansfield was present in each of the differing crime scenes on the night of the murders. In each murder, the victims were hacked to death with an axe and the mirrors in the homes were covered. A burning lamp with the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed and a basin in which the murderer washed the weapon was found in the kitchen. In each case, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves, which Wilkerson believed was strong evidence that the man was Mansfield, who knew his fingerprints were on file at the Federal Military Prison in Leavenworth. Mm -hmm. I know, this is compelling evidence. Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916, and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City. Payroll records, however, provided an alibi that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. He was released for lack of evidence and later won a lawsuit brought against Wilkerson and was awarded $2,225, which is so weirdly specific. Yeah. Wilkerson believed that pressure from Jones resulted not only in Mansfield's release, but also in the subsequent arrest and trial of Reverend Kelly, who we will get to in a few minutes. However... R.H. Thorpe, a restaurant owner from Shenandoah, Iowa, identified Mansfield as the man he saw the morning after the Villisca murders boarding a train in Clorinda. This man said he had walked from Villisca. If proven to be true, this testimony would disprove Mansfield's alibi. Furthermore, it was reported that Mrs. Vena Tompkins of Marshalltown was on her way to testify when she learned that three men in the woods, when she heard three men in the woods plotting the murder of the Moore family a short time before the killings. So there's a lot of compelling evidence for that guy. I would say so. But he couldn't be convicted because they said his alibi checked out. Okay. Next, we have another supposed serial killer, and this theory is a favorite of most of the police detectives who worked on the case. And his name is Henry Lee Moore. Henry Lee Moore was a suspected serial killer who was not related to the Moore family at all. Different Moore. And was convicted of the murder of his mother and grandmother. So these guys are all like actual other murderers. Oh my god. So he was convicted of this murder several months after the murders in Villisca. His weapon of choice, of course, was an axe. Before and after the murders in Villisca, the very similar axe murders on his mother and grandmother were committed, and all of the cases showed striking similarities, leading to a strong suspicion that some or all of the crimes were committed by an axe-murdering serial killer. So they suspect him of doing the same thing as William Mansfield. They just think maybe it was this guy instead. Hmm. The axe-murdering Henry Moore can also be considered a suspect in, in most of those killings. Not all of them, but most. So he fits the... I committed all the crimes bill as well. The last prominent suspect is a doozy, Reverend George Kelly, who I mentioned briefly earlier. George was an English-born traveling minister who was in town on the night of the murders. George was described as a peculiar gentleman, reportedly having suffered a mental breakdown as an adolescent. As an adult, he was accused of peeping several times and asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. Ew. That's a good... Good reverend. Doing good reverend things. 
We had such a good church talk earlier. I know. Children's Day was so nice. And then this guy, this perv was here. No good. On June 8th, 1912, George came to Villisca to teach at the Children's Day services, which the Moore family attended on June 9th, 1912. He left town between 5 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. on June 10th, 1912, hours before the bodies were discovered. Mm. George had confessed to the murders in court. Okay. But the jury didn't believe his confession. Because he was a reverend? Because he was mentally ill. <laughs> oh. There's that and that. In the weeks that followed, he displayed a fascination with the case and wrote many letters to the police, investigators, and family of the deceased, which is so fucked up. Don't write to their family. This aroused suspicion, and a private investigator wrote back to George asking for details that he might know about the murders. George replied with a great amount of details, claiming to have heard sounds and possibly witnessed the murders. His known mental illness made authorities question whether he knew the details because of having committed the murders or because he had heard some details in the news and was imagining his own version of the account. Mm. In 1914, two years after the murders, Kelly was arrested, or Reverend Kelly was arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. He was sexually harassing a woman who had applied for a job as a secretary. And we already know he was trying to get people to pose nude and peeping on them. He was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the National Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C. Investigators speculated again that George could be the murderer of the Moore family, so they really, really want him to be the person who committed this crime. Right. Because it's a pretty easy way to sew it all up. In 1917, George was actually arrested for the Velisca murders. Police obtained a confession from him. However, it followed many hours of interrogation— and George later recanted, so they kind of coerced him into a confession that he didn't said he didn't want to make. After two separate trials, he was acquitted. There are a few more suspects listed everywhere, but there's simply not that much information on them, and they were all let off with an alibi that checked out. One of them had been arrested for vagrancy the same night as the crimes, but in a different state, so he definitely didn't do it. Mm. All of them were drifters who came in on the train and then left town pretty quickly. The case has obviously never been solved. Wowzers. Yeah. So that's Velisca for now. And now Leslie's going to tell you her axe murder. <laughs> okay. Yours was such a nice story at the beginning. At the beginning? Just because yeah. they went to church and had fun? <laughs> yep. Okay. Got dark so fast. It sure did. Okay. On April 4th, 1922, after four days of not hearing or seeing his neighbors, a man enters their barn to find four of the family members murdered, lying in pools of their blood. Two more members were found horrifically killed in their beds inside the home. Now we go back. Okay. Flashback. Our story takes place in 1922 at Hinter Kaifecht Farmstead which sat in a clearing in the woods near the barbarian town of Groburn, Germany, and a half a mile behind, or hinter, the village of Kaifek. Oh, I get it. Mm -hmm. Living at the homestead was Andreas Gruber, who was 63, and the locals described him as rude, cranky, and greedy. Oh, no. No one liked him. (laughs) Oh, no, yours doesn't start off as nice. No. I always want to call him, like, McGruber, too. Yeah, (laughs) McGruber. His wife, Satsia, was 72. 
Their daughter, Victoria, who was 35, and her two children, Satsia, who was seven, and Yosef, who was two. I like the same names. Yeah. And Victoria was actually the owner of the farm, not her father. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. I think this is how – so this was something I learned, like, on the drive here. I think it had to do with the fact that the farm was theirs, but when she married her husband, Carl, he – Went to war in 1914 for World War One, um, while she was pregnant with her daughter. And he died in the trenches, so he never returned home. Aww. That was, like, within the first year. And I think when he died, he had a piece of the land, but then it all became hers afterwards because it all went to – it was all going to go to him. Interesting. And then now it's all hers. So was it ever her father's? No, actually, sorry. It all came from her mother's side. Oh, okay. That's right. Okay. okay. That's why. Okay. That was something Whoa, I learned on a- the way here. So I was glad I like learned that connection. She's a boss bitch. The yeah. whole homestead is so hers. It's completely all hers. Right, girl. Yes. So as I said, when Carl went off to war, she was pregnant with her daughter, who was seven and now, right? She was pregnant with a seven year old. It was crazy. <laughs> she was huge. <laughs> well, she was so she was pregnant with their first child. Yes. But she has two children. Got it. So he died while at war. So who fathered Yosef? I don't know. Who? I don't know. Okay. Rumors swirled that Andreas Gruber was the father. Oh, nobody likes him and he's an incesty person. Yeah. He's the worst. Rumors of their ancestral relationship had been circulating for years. In 1915, he was actually sentenced to prison for the crime of incest. And Victoria (gasps) was sentenced for a month because that's fair. It was clearly her fault. She, like, wanted it. Get the hell out of here. So these past crimes would lend the locals to believe their ancestral relationship birthed Yosef. After the birth, Victoria (sighs) named Lorenz Schlittenbauer, their young widowed neighbor, the father, but because on the birth certificate had the initials LS. Yes. So many believe that it was him. And it's pretty much like known, like there's a, it's just like reported everywhere that it is like this guy's kid. Yeah. Um, but Lorenz was, he like denied that that was his child. And he actually ended up calling the police and being like, it's not my kid. The father and daughter are having sex. And so he put them back in prison. What a douchebag. Yeah. But he ended up being like, he ended up taking responsibility and was like, okay, it's my kid. So they, like, didn't have to go to jail. But then he had to start paying child support payments. I still don't like him. I know. The locals didn't really buy this story, and they were like, that's the father's, the grandfather's They the wanted father. the incest story to be true, basically? Yeah. Okay. And because it was, things had been seen, and oh, it so had been. Oh, so he was, like, mm-hmm. inappropriate? Yeah. Okay. And everyone hated him, you know. But unfortunately, Victoria didn't look like a victim, which was, I mean, that's why she went to jail for it, too. I hate that she went to jail. That's awful. So despite dealing with the nasty gossip, the Gruber still interacted with the townsfolk regularly. So, like, Hinterkaifecht was pretty much, like, secluded. So they could be kind of away from a lot of things for a while. They did have neighbors. They were a little further away, but they kind of could keep to themselves a bit. But they did go into town all the time. Um, little Satsia, uh, was, she went to school in town six days a week. Uh, the postman delivered mail regularly. They had a live-in maid who grew up within the town. And there were plenty of times that the Grubers would need to go into town for various goods. 
So now the events leading up to their deaths. Six months prior to the murders, their maid quit after claiming she heard strange sounds from the attic. It's always the attic. She heard disembodied footsteps and sounds, but she checked the attic often to find no one there. She also noticed some items had been moved around and even a few things missing. She told Andreas that she was sorry, but this house is haunted and she had to leave. (laughs) Fuck this. There it goes. Bye. (laughs) I will make a mention here. I didn't know when to, but I'm afraid I'll forget. Okay. So all of the reports are in German. (laughs) Yeah, this was happened. this was hard. So a lot of it is where I'm getting from like certain blogs, other people writing about it. And I did find a couple of um, podcasts that said that they had translators. But again, I can't confirm certain things. So the ones that did say they had translators, they said that the maid actually never said the house was haunted. Huh. So her recollection of this was not that. That there were some weird things going on, but they believe that she left because she caught Andreas <gasps> and Victoria having sex. And like, she, or him him raping her, basically. Oh, and shit. And the weird thing is, is Vic, so there is one circumstance where they were in the barn, and she walked in on them in a precarious situation, and it looked like Victoria was kind of yielding to him. But Victoria will mention, there will be in a report where she'll say if she knew that somebody was coming, she would have been trying to fight her father more. But she just would, like, give in. This would be, like, years. It would almost be, like, since she was— like, raping her? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this had been apparently in in another article. It had been that when she was maybe 12 or so, she was 12 or 16, some age, she had reported to a um, neighbor— that, like, this was happening, that her father was raping her and that she hated him and she couldn't look at him. And so then that's how the town got to know. And then she married Carl. And then a year later when Carl had died in the war, this had kind of continued. And Carl also did not have a great relationship with her father. Oh, God, of course he did. And so in 1915, that's when they both got arrested for, like, incest. So maybe this Schlittenbauer guy is just taking the hit for him. Well, that's part of it. A little bit is like maybe he's taking the hit. Or he also, we'll get into it a little bit more, he does have more of a role. Like he might have actually had like right. an, an actual crush on her. Right, because I mean I've read this story a bunch of times and I always walk away thinking it's his. So this is very interesting. Mm-hmm. So this left, um, Andre was obviously confused. So if we go along with the idea that the maid did, have some hauntings. If not, this story still makes sense to me, and I actually think I figured out who the killer was because of it. I can't wait to hear. (laughs) So they had to now find a new maid. They couldn't find any for, like, six months. Good help is so hard to find. Plus, nobody wanted to, like, go to this house. They hated this guy. And also, isn't it, like, relatively isolated out there? They're not, like, in the town center. It is. It's, like, in the woods in a clearing. Yeah. It's weird. But they do have neighbors. They're only about a half a mile away from that Kaifek town. Mm-hmm. And right. But they are it – is, it is far. It's far. Yeah. They're an hour away from Munich, which is their big city. Okay. That's where the police That's will come from. Bad. Between this time, not much happened until a week before the murders when Andreas noticed footsteps in the snow leading from the woods to his house. It was rare, but sometimes people would walk through the woods and happen upon their home, but they always just walked past or went back into the woods. It like, wasn't weird. Sometimes they would see people just like passing through. They had a weird house in the woods. You know? Yeah. It uh-huh. happens. 
What caught Andrea's attention was that there was only one set of footsteps coming from the woods and ending near the barn, and there was no footsteps leading away. And there was just a fresh, clean, it had just snowed. So he was out there kind of checking to see, like, okay, it had just snowed, making sure everything was okay. And so when he saw just the set of footsteps or footprints, he was like, well, it's nobody in the family. Like, and so they spent the rest of the time trying to find out, like, if anybody was on the premise. Ew, it's like that, like, <laughs> I was walking on the beach and there was one set yeah, of Yeah, it's so creepy. <laughs> so he tried to, he searched all around the property. He didn't find anyone there. That night he heard noises in the attic and went to check but found nothing. Other people heard some noises as well. Okay. And it was like a whole big thing. This will also be mentioned that the daughter that day on March 31st when she was in school, she was super tired and and she was like falling asleep in class. And she mentions that like we were up all night trying to like find like there was like noises happening. But they also like talk about like she mentions like her mother and grandmother like having an argument with the father and like running off. And there was like there was a lot of drama. That is a stressful household. It's a very stressful household. And there's and they know. So that's why like the town kind of knows that there's like a lot of shit going on in there. He also found a newspaper inside the house. He hadn't purchased a paper. His wife and daughter said that they hadn't purchased it. And the postman said he did not deliver it. So where did this paper, newspaper Phantom come from? Phantom newspaper? Mm-hmm. He then noticed scratches on his tool shed, uh, like someone was trying to get into the lock shed. He also checked his keys and noticed that there was a key missing. They had like two sets and one was missing. Okay. None of the family members could account for it. He was so unsettled by all these findings that he, and was wondering if the maid had quit for good reason. Instead of going to the cops to help investigate the grounds, he decided he would just tell his neighbors. <laughs> Yeah, that's better. Yeah. They were, they said that they hadn't really seen anybody, or they hadn't seen anybody trespassing, but now they would keep an eye out for it. Some sources say Andreas and Victoria have both seen on different occasions a figure standing out in the wood looking at their house. A few other neighbors have also come forward that they too have caught a stranger wandering in their area, but it never led them to any concern. This is the creepiest house in the world. Yeah. It's so scary there. It is super scary. I hate it. (laughs) On Friday, March 31st, Maria Bromgardner went to her first day of work. Oh, wait. Did I get that? Sorry, guys. So they did find a maid, right? They found a maid. Maria Bromgardner. Yeah, Maria Bromgardner. (laughs) I just forget if I mentioned it in there. Not I feel yet. like I th- I got rid of a sentence. So anyway, I know I feel like I left something out in mind too, but I'm just gonna mention it back. I guess because okay, it took them six months to find a new maid, and that I said that. So that's what? from when the first maid quit. That Probably because they're months. assholes and nobody wants to work. Well, for that's them. what I mean. Yeah. So Victoria had gone into town a few days earlier and talked to this woman who had a sister, and her sister was a little slower, but had done some housework. She was 45. Done some mating. She did mating. Yeah. yeah. And so at this point in time, she knew that she no longer had the employment that she was at. Maybe somebody passed away. I don't know what happened, but she was like, "Does she want to work here? Like, obviously, I'm having some trouble." And Maria agreed. So on March 31st, Maria. Bromgardner went to her first day of work at the Gruber's. It would be the worst first day ever. Yeah. Her sister (laughs) escorted her that morning, and she would possibly be the last person to have seen the Gruber's and her sister alive. Oh, no. Maria, Maria, Maria. On Saturday, April 1st, this is the next day, 
Young Satsia was sent from school or was absent from school with no excuse. That nobody had like get an excuse. Get an excuse. Although, come to find out that this happened somewhat often. Nobody was like too freaked out. She did get sick a lot, and because of their family, like they just had a lot of issues. And they the were day all before, inbred. They got sick all yeah. the time. They had no immune system. And it's the fine. day before, she was like falling asleep in class. So they were like, something might be up. Oh, she had coronavirus. So the teacher and the students prayed for her, and they went on with their day. That Sunday, probably fixed it. Yep. Yeah. Sunday, the Grubers missed worship. And this was big. They went all the time. Yeah. Was it Children's Day? Not that day. Okay. <laughs> On Monday, April 3rd, young Satsia missed school again. God damn it. So get your life together. Whole, like, yeah, it's a lot of days now. The postman noticed the mail had been piling up. He also said that he normally saw someone in the house but had not noticed anyone the last couple days he was by. So he said something to the neighbors, which I thought was really nice, who said that they saw smoke coming from the chimney every day. So no one, so like no one really worried about it. No red flags. They were like, oh, people are home. People are home. You probably just missed them. Makes sense. On April 4th, so now four days later, Albert Hoffner, which is a family last name of mine, but no relation. (gasps) Oh. (laughs) Spelled a little different, but it probably could have been the same. Yeah, Absolutely. So Albert Hoffner was a mechanic. He worked on a feeding machine at the farm for several hours that day. When he got there, he was like, had planned to work that day for them, had to fix a machine. He went there, didn't find anyone on the ground, kind of waited a little bit before he got to work, but was like, I know where everything is. I'll just like, maybe they got held up in town or whatever. He had this thing scheduled. Yeah. Okay. So he was like, I'm just going to like do my job. But... He had worked there for several hours, like four and a half hours, realized he hadn't seen anybody the whole That's time. That's a long time. He did hear a dog, dog, and then he did see the dog. So he actually at one point saw the barn door was open or was closed. And then at one point he saw that it was like cracked open and the dog was outside. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, okay, somebody came back like all – like he was like in the middle of his job. So he's like, they might come over or I'll like catch with them later. And then that kind of all stopped. And when he was done, he couldn't find anybody anywhere. So he looked around, didn't find anyone, and decided, like, whatever, I'm done. I'll just tell the neighbor. So he, like, went to the neighbor's house and let them know, like, I was over there for a couple hours. I did this job. I haven't seen them. Like, if you catch them, like, just let them know I was here. If they have any questions, like, I'll come back. Right. Also very responsible. Yeah. (laughs) That guy's good. Since it had been a few days at this point, and the neighbors had all been alerted several times now that people couldn't get a hold of them, God, if they, they decided only weren't assholes. This would have been different. Right. They decided it was time to check on them. So their After neighbor, days. so their neighbor, possible baby daddy, Lauren Schlittenbauer. Oh no! Heads to the Gruber's house. Actually, he sends his children first. <laughs> Oh, wait, so he has his other young, confirmed he has other, children. Yeah, so he was married before, and I think he's a widower. Okay. And he has a son who is 16. His name is Johan. And he has a stepson whose name is Josef. Okay. So I think there's a lot of, in Germany, so it's many so funny, Josefs. like, in this time, there's so many people that were, like, married and remarried, like, they had... But divorce wasn't as common, was no, it? No, so maybe... Everyone maybe died. deaths. I, yeah. Because even um, Victoria's mom, so so Zatzia, the mother, who's mm-hmm. 73, yes, she does. was actually married before. And so Jeez. she has other older children. 
And then she so married Andreas, and they had several children, but Victoria's the only one that lived. She was the oldest, and she's the only one that lived. People Everyone have died. Rumored, people have rumored. This is how terrible Andreas's, like, life is. He's the worst. People, they have rumored that he, because they believe that he beat Zatzia. Oh, my God. And he was rough on Victoria, and they think that the children actually died from his roughness. <gasps> But it isn't, like, confirmed. I just think that's, like, such a wild speculation Ugh. that he, like, beat them to death and he's not in jail. You know it what I mean? It is wild. But also, like, I don't know what Germany is like. I don't know what that area is like at that, that specific time. That time period was also very much matters of the home were matters of the home. You that's didn't true. And you they didn't lived interfere. on a farm. And this would have been, like, probably in the 1800s. Yeah, out in, like, an, like a relatively isolated area. Isolated enough that you're not, like, in somewhere urban. Yeah. And if they were just like, well... Our kid didn't make it. You'd be like, your kid didn't make it. Yeah. No one was like, I'm sorry, why? How? Yeah. They were just like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Wild. So like that, I feel like that's possible mm-hmm. for sure. That's nuts. All right. So Lauren sends his children up there to like go check he out He doesn't the go farm. himself. He sends he his kids. He sends cool. his kids. It's like a far trip. He's like, you go. I'm so tired. Yeah. You're so young. They go up there. They check everything out. Everything's locked up. There's nothing going on. They do hear, like, the cattle and stuff in the barn kind of going, like, a little – like, it's it's reported that they heard the cattle kind of going wild. Mooing it up. But (laughs) everything was locked up, so they were like, nobody's here. So – they came back home, told Lorenz, and he was like, oh, I guess I have to go up Fuck, there. I have to move. Yeah, so he takes two of his other guy friends up there. <laughs> I love that he doesn't ever go alone. He's no. like, first you go without me. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to take other dudes. Yeah. And just like his son said, everything was locked up. They also hear the dog barking and the animals inside the barn, so they decide to break into the barn. When they enter the barn, there is this, like, door this long door that's kind of like propped up a bit and then there's like some hay and so he goes to move that door and kind of moves away the hay and that's when they see several bodies stacked on top of each other in a bloody mess. Ugh, I knew this was coming but it's still terrible. He right away starts unstacking the bodies. Which is so dumb. So dumb. Don't do that. And Be Ross. the other people are like, what are you doing? Because they're like, you're contaminated. Because they know about contamination. It's they're like, 10 don't. years after Velisca, too. Yeah. So, so there's don't more. Don't touch anything. He said, I'm looking for my boy. <gasps> oh, that made me very goosebumpy and sad. All the while, though, it will be reported oh, that Lorenz looks pretty unfazed by the horrifying scene that they stumble upon. So okay. after going through all of the bodies, they realize that it's Andreas, Zatzia, Victoria, and young Zatzia. Okay. So the father, mother, Victoria, and her daughter. And then granddaughter. Yeah. The seven-year-old, right? Yeah, the seven. So those are the only four in the barn. She has bad details, too. (sighs) After not finding who Lorenz was looking for, he gets up and heads towards the farmhouse where he enters and finds the maid in her bedroom dead. And he finds Yosef in his crib with a piece of cloth or clothing, probably from Victoria, draped over him. And he's also dead. Ugh. And again, it's reported that Lorenz was still showing, like, no real signs of shock. Like, if now especially because the neighbors are just like, maybe that is actually his son. And why is he not, like, freaking out? No, I can't judge how people respond to you very, can't. like, yeah. traumatizing situations. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you don't react. Mm-hmm. You just can't. You shut, like, shut right the fuck down. And you're like, Ugh. Also, there's, like, at least an hour before the police. Like, there's, there's a long time before the police end up coming. Yeah. 
And I just, there's a ton of people. Well, so so now more neighbors are coming to the site, mm-hmm. just like in the Vliska. Like, they're just mm-hmm. they're just showing up in Prancing droves. through they're the all scene, yep. There. Some even start making snacks in the kitchen because there's so God many people. It. They're just like, oh, we got to make some food for these you people. don't got to make some food. But they're going through all the crime scenes. They're trampling through it. They're doing all this stuff. And they're all waiting around till the police get there, which they're coming from Munich. But who knows how long it took for them to get the word so now they're all sitting there, and yeah, part of me is just like, they're like gossiping, later. and they're talking about it, and they're yeah. like, isn't it weird that, like, Lorenz was, like, not yelling? <laughs> He's like, so not mad enough. Like, I was throwing up so much, and he was just like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I can just, like, hear them all being like, this is weird. They determined that the victims must have been killed one by one, like, when the police oh, I hate this, there. I hate this, I hate it. Meaning the maid was killed in her room, room, Yosef in his crib, and the rest of the family went into the barn one by one to be attacked and slaughtered. Oh, God. It is also hard to tell when each attack took place because so much of the scene had been tampered with. It is believed they were all killed on March 31st, the first day of that maid's job. (laughs) (laughs) Poor fucking maid. (laughs) Guys, it's my first day of work. Oh, no. (laughs) Victoria and her daughter, uh, this is interesting. Victoria and her daughter were dressed in day clothes while everyone else was dressed for bed. Oh. Leading investigators to believe that maybe Victoria and her daughter were killed first. And maybe her father and mother went into the barn probably separately to, like, look for, as they were looking for them. And then they were killed. And then maybe the other people, like, the maid and Yosef were killed. whoever brought them into the barn knew them. And they just went with them willingly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so much worse. Several that's things. so much worse. <sighs> Further investigation indicates that the killer must have stayed on the premise after killing the family. So, again, this would be March 31st, and they didn't find them until April 4th. <sighs> they would have slept, ate, and took care of the farm animals. So this is, like, the other thing. Like, neighbors would be, mm-hmm. like, the... Everybody was fed. The dog was fed. Everything looked yeah, fine. Yeah, like in Villisca, like, they said, like, oh, the wolf, no one had let out the livestock and the chickens were still in their coop, so we knew that no one had gotten up. And then yeah. the farmhand arrived in the morning, so that was like a... Yeah, no, this was like everything was taken care of. Oh, God, so somebody was just living mm-hmm. life in there. Yep. Ugh. And once finding out why the first maid left, so when, like, people were saying, like, this is what the maid left because she thought, like, the house was haunted... The police determined that the killer must have been around for over six months, maybe oh even God. living on site. Oh, my God. But. Oh, are, I hate that so much. Where are they now? Where are they now? Probably dead. This was a very long time ago. Once the autopsies were done, and they were done by Dr. Johann Baptiste Allmuller, it was determined that the murder weapon was most likely a Matic. Is that how you say it? Mad- yeah. Matic? Is a which is like a pickaxe. Yeah, it's like a farming tool. Mm-hmm. Um, it was wielded by someone who knew how to use it. Uh, that's what they felt like. Unfortunately, the police had been unable to find the weapon or eight or any weapon on the premise. They like couldn't find it anywhere. Oh shit! So thinking like, well, maybe he took it with them. We don't know, but there's like no sign of Did what it was used. Did they also use the blunt side instead of the sharp side? They used everything. Okay, yeah. just curious. So now I'll do, like, the trigger warning. This is where, like, I'll go through the autopsy report. Oh, this is the one that I know is coming. So young Zatzia's lower jaw was shattered, her cervical injury due to shock, 
Uh, she had severe head like her injuries. cervical spine? Cer- uh, yeah, cervical. Okay. Yeah, the cervix. I was going to say, not her cervix. No, the cervical. That's, that's yeah. like in your lady parts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the skull was smashed with several blows, and her neck revealed a wide, gaping, transverse wound. So he definitely, like, ripped right through her neck. Mm-hmm. On the right of her face was a circular wound, and her face was smeared with blood, and her cramped right hand were pieces of her hair. I hate, this is the part I hate. Yeah. It was determined that she was alive for several hours after the attack before dying. She had torn out her own hair like out of stress. Yup. So because they don't know the timing of everything, if she was, if she was part of like the first round, she had to have watched everyone die. Oh God. Yeah. This is the one, that's the one I hate. I knew it was coming. It is so painful to think that little seven-year-old girl was sitting there so injured and stressed out watching the rest of her family die and pulling out her own hair. Oh, God. Zatzia, Andrea's wife, had bruising near the right eye, seven blows to her head, one in a triangular shape, and signs of strangulation and a cracked skull. So triangle would be like the pick part of the pickaxe, yes? Mm -hmm. Okay. Victoria had nine star-shaped wounds to her head, strangulation marks on the neck, right side of her face smashed with a blunt object, a small round injury of a pointed tool on the upper skull, and a smashed skull. So they, like, strangled them, too? Come on, man. Zatzia and, and Victoria would be the only ones that there was, like, strangulation. So, so it was part like, of me wonders if, again, if it's somebody that they knew or so were very close them. to... It was like a struggle like that, yeah, and something a little – or like simple like – Star-shaped. Yeah. What makes a star-shaped impression Um, automatic? I don't – I was trying to like imagine that. I feel like there's some tools that can do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Like I just was trying to think like what part they would have to be hit with just because – Right. You look that up. I'll go through I the will. Rest. Keep going. Maria uh, Bromgardner, the maid, was killed by- <gasps> Poor cro- fucking maid. One day. What less than 24 maid? hours and she was killed. I'm so sad. She was killed by crosswire blows to the head, face crusted with blood. One head wound was four centimeters deep and blood encrusted and was blood encrusted, probably resulted from like the sharp side. Baby Yosef was killed by a heavy blow in the face and the top of the bassinet stroller was, like, pretty destroyed, so there must have been, like, I don't know. There are pictures of that. Yeah, it's gross. Andreas Gruber's right half of the face was smashed. Cheekbones were protruding. Flesh seemed shredded, and the face was caked with blood. Blech. Yeah. So, yeah, all this was horrible. Um, Victoria and her mother were the only ones that received uh, any strangulation marks, and they definitely got, like, the most head attacks, too. So somebody was mad at them. Yeah. It, it would seem. Yeah. They just got the most of that. Yikes. Usually when you have like kind of overkill like that, like a lot of times, like not a lot of times, but in like Villisca, they say that's why they think that the murderer was going after the dad because he got the most blows to the head. Like yeah. it was so, so much overkill that you think that's their primary target. Right, right. Sometimes I'm like, well, the women, probably, maybe they were, like, struggling more. You're like, right. Maybe they fight. were really fighting back, too. Yeah. That's also absolutely mm-hmm. 100% possible. 
The court physician who carried out the autopsies took the heads of each victim. He So they decapitated Hateful. each of them. Yeah, I read and that. And they sent them away to be studied further in Munich. At this time, this was believed to be the best source of evidence. Unfortunately, they weren't able to get much more from their heads. And years later, the heads were lost in an air raid on the Court of Aww. Justice building in Augsburg uh, during World War II. So it's like the Bordens. They took their head off too. Yeah. And they brought their skull in to be like, here's what happened. And they're like, that doesn't help. <laughs> we don't need this. You yeah. made people upset though. Yeah. Uh, the Gruber's bodies uh, were still laid to rest. So people were like, oh, good. They like are in coffins and. Which was a big deal. Yeah. That was big. The trouble with this case, besides the fact that the crime scene was completely contaminated, is that there seems to be no motive, or at least that's what the police for some reason, say. Fair. At first, the police thought the motive was theft because no. the, they did have a lot of money. They actually were very, like, Victoria was herself was very well off. They I had feel a, like if you farm. wanted to rob them, you wouldn't have to individually slaughter them in a barn. Right. Well, they just didn't, they had nothing to go on. I mean, cause, so, but if you could get in that house, you could get in that house when they weren't there. Right. Just steal everything and run. Well, this was quickly dismissed because immediately <laughs> they realized that a large sum of money and other valuables were not taken. It didn't look like anything had been taken. The large sum of money was speculated to be Victoria's. Just weeks before, she had withdrawn all of her savings and gone to her sister-in-law's for more money. She planned to invest in the farm and made a large donation to her church for missionary work. Okay. When witnesses told the police that Lorenge Schlittenbauer had little to no reaction upon entering the scene and dismantling it, Ugh. the police quickly moved to put him on t the top of the suspect list. So let's look at Lorenz. Yes, let's. He is widely speculated as to having sexual relationship with Victoria and may have fathered Yosef. Lorenz was said to have had a major crush on Victoria and he even wanted her to be his wife. But Andreas would never have let that happen. Because he didn't want to let her go. Because he was gross and raping his child. So gross. So were the sounds of someone in the attic or even in the barn, because they had said that there were some sounds in the barn, um, just the two of them having a private affair? Ugh. Or even maybe him hiding out till he could safely leave? We don't know. It was suspicious for him to enter the barn and immediately dismantle the scene, though. Yeah, that's... Mm. But it's also like when somebody's not thinking, they just, they're yeah. like first looking just to see if something's behind there. And if then he really was looking for his baby. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm trying to think, I would never want to put myself in that place. But if I walked into a scene where I thought perhaps my children were dead, yes, I would dig through it immediately. Yeah. And when he said, I'm looking for my boy, quote, mm -hmm. quote, my boy, uh, was this because he was actually concerned and looking for his son? Or was he trying to make the other guys seem like unsuspicious about him you know it could go either way but i think he was like looking i think so too i think regardless of whether he knows he's the father or not i think that he was concerned a yeah. little bit yeah and and that is a reaction like if you really thought you were gonna find someone you loved in that pile of rubble mm -hmm. you would dig not rubble sorry of bodies you would dig through it but if you didn't you wouldn't Right. He wasn't looking for something. There's no way you would get in there and be like, let me touch all these bodies real quick. Unless he was trying to hide something. I guess you're right, yeah. Oh, it's so hard. Next, when he entered the house that was locked, he was able to just walk in because he pulled the key from his pocket. I was going to say, doesn't he have a key? He did have a key. And neighbors were aware that Andreas was missing a key. Right, you mentioned. But 
Lorenz was the closest neighbor and possibly having a private affair with Victoria or was the father of Yosef. So might so have a key. maybe <laughs> having a key wasn't really suspicious. Right, right, right. Upon entering the barn, the family dog, which was tied up in the barn and unfortunately had been abused at this point. No. It wasn't earlier when that mechanic had seen yeah. it. Started barking uncontrollably at Lorenz. But Lorenz does tell the cops that this may have happened because he had, like, a ton of blood on him from the barn. Like, just on the shoe. Like, he obviously wouldn't clean, but he got, like, blood and stuff. So Dogs he was, don't like, just bark at blood, though. Right. Dogs know. They Some do know. know. They 100% know. They know. But who knows why, like, maybe he had not had great altercations. Nobody liked Andreas. Lorenz hated him. Nobody liked They've anybody. Had, yeah, if he ever went there, it was probably never good. He was probably always fighting with Victoria if she was try- trying to get money from him, That's too. true. Um, Dogs know, though. But here's a weird thing. Okay. It is reported that his own family said that they can't account for his whereabouts the day of the murder, a few days before the murder, or the days following the murder. Oh, that's because he was the murderer. So some other things that have had been rumored to be going on during this time. Some believe Victoria had tried to sue Lorenz for alimony payments, which... uh, They weren't married. She can't do that. They call it alimony payments, but I think it's like child child support. support? Yeah, but I don't know. They they kept calling it alimony, so I threw it in like that. That's fine. I was just thinking, like, you can't get alimony if you're not married. I got stuck on it for a while because of that. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what they called it. What's frustrating here is that Victoria was well off, better off than Lorenz. So he, so was he getting fed up with Victoria's greed? Maybe. You know, maybe. Uh, because otherwise, Victoria didn't need his money. She was fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Although she did kind of clean out her bank account. And I don't really know. She said she was investing it into the farm. Maybe she was, but it's kind of weird that she cleaned out the whole bank account. Or maybe she was running away and he didn't want her to leave. Maybe. <gasps> or maybe she was, yeah, maybe she was trying to run away with him or, and then I, I have a, I have a, a so small many. weird okay. Theory. Yeah. So she didn't need the money unless she was just trying to prove that he was the father. So people would stop thinking she was being raped by her dad. Cause I think that was like also part of it. She just Fair wanted enough. him to like claim that he was the father. So mm-hmm. people would leave her alone. But I mean, that rumor wasn't really being helped. Anyway, the fact is that Lorenz would have had intimate knowledge of the grounds. He knew them like they might have trusted him and he could have like lured them into that barn to kill. Yes. But the police, despite never giving up because they're like still trying to. (laughs) I think it was like up until like 2007. Wow. Really? Yeah. I think they had been continuing to try to like. They have, like, over 100 suspects. They, like, continued forever. Oh, my God. Um, They could not pin any evidence, like, specific evidence on him. And they also felt like he didn't actually have a motive. So I don't know if it's because there was so much gossip and they were, like, thinking if it was gossip versus motive. But I feel like there there are several things that could be motives here. Okay. I agree. Anyway, let's go on to the next suspect. Next. (laughs) Carl, Victoria's dead husband. What? (laughs) Many speculated that Carl was not actually dead because his body was never recovered. So when he came home and saw that Victoria had another child, he was angry. Oh, shit. And when he realized that the child might be his father-in-law's, he was enraged and killed everyone. He was just like, ah! 
killed everybody. Yeah. This That's theory crazy. broke down when it was revealed that many of the husband, many of her husband's military comrades insisted that they had seen his body <laughs> with their own eyes. Like I watched him die. Yeah. Stop it. Stop it. Next, an inspector called General George Reingruber or Reingruber. Uh, wanted to question Adolf, <laughs> he wanted wanted to question Adolf Gump because not the same Adolf. You can't be named that anymore. Mm-hmm. I guess in the twenties you could. Yeah, Adolf was still okay back then. Yeah, uh, because he was rumored to have had a relationship with Victoria, but no evidence was found to prove this claim. His sister on her deathbed claimed that Adolf and her other brother committed the murder. After the claim, Anton went into custody. However, Adolf was already dead. In 1954, Anton was dismissed and couldn't be proved to have taken part. Hmm. So see, like, this happened in 1922, so this is like 1954. They're still trying to find... Yeah, Velisca has that too. It's the same kind of thing. Next, Anton Bichler, 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 and Charles Bichler, Bichler, I I love the Bichlers. ...were suspected (laughs) of murder after... Um, a burglarly, burglarly, it's very late. Um, Anton was known to have had an intimate relationship with one of the previous maids. (gasps) The brothers were arrested in April for the murders, but were later released as both could provide alibis. The brothers had been out of the area working in town at Schrobenhausen. I love the Schrobenhausen. Next. Peter Weber was named suspect by Josef Betz, who had worked with him during the winter of 1919 to 1920 as laborers and shared a chamber. According to Betz, Weber spoke of the secluded farm and even knew that it was owned by an elderly couple who had their daughter and grandchildren living with them. Betts testified in court that Weber had suggested murdering Andreas for the family's money, but when Betts didn't respond, Weber never spoke of it again. This case was dropped, and Weber was never convicted of the murders. I don't like know why they didn't go further into that. <laughs> yeah, I have those too, where you're like, this sounds right, and you just walked away. Mm-hmm. Cool. Next, Yosef Bartel. Everyone's name is Yosef. Get out of here. <laughs> He had escaped a mental asylum around the same time of the murder. (laughs) There's always one guy, they're like, he's crazy. He's crazy. And because of this, was the first original suspect. However, all searches were unsuccessful. The mental asylum that Yosef escaped from was over 70 kilometers away. He just ran for his life. And Yosef was never found. So he's just out there living his life. He's still around. You guys don't know. He could be. Um, okay, so in, I'll just like jump to this point. That was like the end of the suspects. Okay. But in 2007, students from Furstenfeldbrook. I love it there. <laughs> uh, police Academy, like young little police cadets. Hey. Got the task to investigate the case once more using modern criminal investigative techniques. Yes. They concluded that it is impossible to solve the crime after all that time had passed. Evidence is missing or was never taken from the farm. Crime scene uh, sketches were not made and fingerprint traces traces were not taken or were not properly preserved. Possible suspects had passed away. Mm -hmm. They did consider one person to be the main suspect, but they will not 
name them because, like, in Germany, they, like, are like, oh, the case is closed. Like, we can't talk about it. Um, but also Germany. they wanted to respect, like, the living rel- – any living relatives. But it has been speculated that that they think it's Lorenz. That's, like, who they think. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. So in 1923, a year after the murders, the farmstead had been abandoned and the police didn't seem to need to investigate the grounds anymore because, like, I mean, they probably could have, but they just decided. They were done. They they were were tired. The locals wanted it torn down. It was, like, too depressing to look at. They were like, They do a lot of murder houses. A lot of times the town will decide they just want to demolish it because it it has, like, too much bad juju. Yeah. But then at the same time, it's, like, all of the evidence is Right. Yeah, you're destroying everything. Only a year later. A little different when these crimes are, like, in 1997 and they've solved them. <laughs> yeah. So after it was demolished, they ended up finding the murder weapon in the rubble. Ooh. I'm not quite sure. I tried to find exactly where it was. I don't – It. When sounds, I read said the attic of, of something. But exactly. I don't think – I didn't find that anywhere in the actual, like, reports. No? Okay. I think it was just in a rubble. Like, some people think that it – I think that that's, like, a really clean end to the story. Like, the, yeah. there was a man living in the attic, and then that's where they found the murder weapon. Like, the whole thing was, like, toppled down, and so it was they just, just in, found the it in the rubble. And it could so have been anywhere. I couldn't tell if it was in the house or if it was actually in the barn somewhere. Me too. It's. I read that it was just in the attic, but it could have been the attic of the barn. It could have been like way up right. high because there was a loft in the barn where yeah. it looked like people had lived. And again, this could be an area where there were like Ew. sexual relationships happening. Ew. That's what's like really uncomfortable. Like I don't know who was there. It could have been like a little hideout. There was also supposed to be this like tile of the of the roof that could be lifted and if you peeked out for it you could see the farmhouse so it could also be a way that somebody could see somebody coming and again it could be Lorenz Mm -hmm. up there you know being like are we gonna get caught it could be the father being (sighs) like is anybody coming um it could be where maybe even like Victoria and her daughter would like sit and try to hide from people like I don't know my god I don't know. Um, but they found the um, the mattock in the rubble, and one of the farmhands, uh, George Siegel, he did identify it as, like, that is our mat. That was Andreas' yeah. mattock. He actually, like, made this one himself. Wow. And it would normally be hung up in the barn, like, perfectly. So he was like, this was hidden somewhere, like. Right, it was Which makes me spot. think it might have gotten thrown into the house somewhere. Yeah. And then just not found. And then once it was all demolished, it was. So that's the story. One of my main theories is is this is like a romantic theory almost. Yeah. I feel like Victoria decided that she was going to run away. Okay. And maybe with Lorenz, I don't know, maybe try to get out of there. And but then so she had like her clothes on. So if the murders happened a lot sooner to each other, mm-hmm. not like she was killed during the day in her day clothes and yeah. everyone else at night. If she was trying to like run away but maybe got like scared because she's clearly hasn't been able to like leave her dad or her farm her dad is awful in one way or another there's no two Mm -hmm. ways about that but she could have like had a confrontation with lorenz and been like um i can't go or can't go yet yeah and I don't know. I don't. Well, it's like so weird because, like, why would she have her daughter with her at that point? I don't know. Maybe her daughter was just with her. But either way, maybe know. he just went like ballistic and just like killed. But that might be why he didn't like finish off the daughter first because he was like, I don't really want to like kill her, even though he like 
pretty much did. I think theory-wise, the one that I read, this, I think it was Lorenz, Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Yeah. He has the most evidence. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the ones I read said that he found out that the child was not his and lost his fucking mind. Like he labored under the impression for a long time that this baby was his baby. Mm-hmm. And then either he was told by Victoria or someone else like, that's not your baby. And he was given compelling evidence that it was actually mm-hmm. her father's child. And then he just lost his fucking mind and yeah. killed everybody. That could definitely be true. But he kept feeling that way the entire time. Like he put them in prison for right. incest. Right, right, right. Right after. I don't know. I'm, th- I'm just saying like yeah. that's the one thing I heard. And the the, uh, the other one is <laughs> I love the theory that her husband didn't actually die. <laughs> I know, I do love it. Just because it's so yeah. mysterious and good. Can I you also, imagine? I also yes. wonder if, I always wonder if he like hired a hitman. Mm. And that's why he was being like weird, like where's my son? And was like pissed to find out maybe his you son You weren't supposed died. to kill that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If mm-hmm. they were supposed to kill everybody else but his son. Right. And, he got and then because anyway. like why would oh, he need shit. to live on the premise? Like there's no reason why he needed to like be know. hanging out around there like that. So it could have been a weird person. Could have been. Ew, that's so... All of it is so eerie and and gross. And there are a couple, like, within the reports, there are a couple of time frames where I think it would have been too quick for Lorenz to actually have been on the premise and then somebody to go down. Because if he was there, for instance, that mechanic that was there and saw the barn door open and the dog come out, Mm -hmm. that would have had to have been the killer doing that. Right. And he was like, okay, whatever. And then he left to go down to the neighbor's house, which was Lorenz. He went to Lorenz's house to tell him. And so how, I I don't know the time frame of everything, but that would have been like, they're not close to each other, but Lorenz just seemed like normal and fine being there. Like, I felt like that would have been too close, too close of a call. It's all so crazy. Yeah. So, (laughs) um, there's one thing I think I may have failed to mention in the Velisca case before I move forward. And yes, there was forward to move. Um, the axe that was used was confirmed to have been the property of Josiah Moore. It was located originally in the coal shed. So whoever took it would have gone to the coal shed, found the axe, and then went into the house with the axe. Okay. So just like Hinter Kaifak, this is a piece of like a tool that lived in the house and someone found just like the medic would have been in the barn in its spot. The axe would have been in the coal shed in its spot and it was removed. Okay. So that's a a common fact. Lastly, we decided to do these cases together, perhaps foolishly because boy were they big, (laughs) because they have one very interesting link. Some people believe that the same man committed both Crimes. Oof. I know. This blew me away as I had previously studied both cases and never had I seen this mentioned one time before. Yeah. The man in question is named Paul Mueller. In 2017, in their book, The Man from the Train, Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James, discuss the Velisca murders as part of a much larger series of murders, which they believe were all committed by a single serial killer. And at this point, I think we can agree that's probably true. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah. So many people linked them with other cases that were so similar mm-hmm. that I think it's reasonable to think that way. Now, we have seen this theory before, obviously, but the Jameses add even more murderers into the mix. They conclude that the murderer was Paul Mueller, as I said, or Miller in some Americanized versions, and he was an immigrant, possibly from Germany, who was the subject of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect of the 1897 murder of a family in West Brookfield, Massachusetts. So this is going back. Mm -hmm. These people had employed him as a farmhand. So this goes, this is now spanning years and years. This is like some Jeffrey Dahmer shit. Bill James started his research in attempt to solve the Velisca murders. And his, with his daughter, they together found archival newspaper stories detailing dozens of families murdered under similar circumstances across the United States. The Jameses thus believe that Mueller was guilty of the Velisca murders as part of a killing spree that lasted over a decade, killing at least 59 people in 14 separate incidents, including the Colorado Springs and Paola crimes, the Jameses identify common features to these crimes, many of which are also found at the Velisca scene, which we discussed earlier. Yes, mm-hmm. this all adds up. The killers selected families who lived near railroad tracks. Now, Velisca had a railroad stop, and I mentioned okay. a lot of times before that the drifters came from a train that people expected and stuff. Suspected, not expected. Hence the book's title as well. Seemingly, the man would get off at a train stop ambush a home at about midnight while the victims were asleep, use the blunt side of an axe rather than the blade to strike the victims in the head and face. Then he would also use an axe found at the victim's home, he would never bring anything with him, and left in plain sight after the murders, covered the victims with blankets to prevent blood splatter, which was not the case in Velisca because the blood splatter was everywhere and the covering was done post-mortem, but whatever. Then he would cover windows from inside the house and lock the doors before departure. In Mueller's suspected crimes, there was often, but not always, a sexual motive directed towards a pubescent girl, as with Lena being partially disrobed. Leading Velisca scholar Dr. Edgar Epperly strongly believes the killer to have been sexually motivated. Here comes the bacon. Oh, boy. (laughs) I told you it was coming back. Dr. Epperly suggests that the girls were merely used for visual satisfaction and the killer. How do I put this delicately? Use the bacon as a stand-in for lady parts while looking at the dead girls. So. Oh. He fucked that bacon. Oh. Mm-hmm. And this is a doctoral scholar who states this. So that's why it wasn't cooked? Yeah. Crispy doesn't resemble what he wants it to resemble. Ew, stop. I don't need... I'm okay. I figured it out, Holly. I figured it out. Oh, God. Paul Mueller is also described, as you may well remember from like two seconds ago, as a German immigrant. It has been theorized that after a string of highly publicized murders in the United States, he fled back to his homeland in Germany, but could not ignore his compulsions and offended once again in Hinterkaifeck. 
The murders bear some similarities to the United States crimes, including the slaughter of an entire family in their isolated home, the use of the blunt edge of a farm tool as a weapon, and the apparent absence of a robbery as a motive. While this is probably the least possible hinterkaifeck theory, it is a possibility. It is, You said they saw a strange Mm -hmm. man in the woods. Yeah. And I cannot help but find it utterly fascinating. So those are our stories. It's so wild. It'd be wild to me if somebody was I, I I could not believe that it was Lorenz if somebody was actually living in the attic for like six yeah. months. And maybe he and was. Longer. That's what I mean. Like he could have been because he was hiding out. Yeah. You know? May- maybe he, he, was. he was hiding out and and just basically waiting to offend again, the way these yeah. people are putting it have put it. Sorry. And and um We've discussed serial killers before, which certainly he would be, as always having a cooling off period. And sometimes it's short, but sometimes it's long. BTK went years and years between his first string of killings and his later string of killings Mm -hmm. because he raised his children in the time between them. So it does happen. Ten years is a possibility. Right. And if he went back home Mm -hmm. and then just like couldn't, quell his impulses and killed again right. yeah it could be that guy <laughs> he could have you know he could have gone back home spent a couple years and then found a nice place to live and was trying to make it work and then just couldn't handle it anymore <laughs> but it was isolated and he was way yeah. out far and he was like i could just do this and get away with it and yeah. he did and he did he did get away with it i mean possibly i mean that is as easy to believe as anything else we state because the fact of the matter is these crimes are just not at all solved yeah. They're not. They're mass murders. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of people at once, and it's pointed. Mm-hmm. And we just can't tell you who or why. And I think that there is nothing scarier than something like that happen, which is so brutal, mm-hmm. and you just have no answers as to why. And also what terrifies me is that if it's not just a serial killer mm-hmm. and it was just, like, your neighbor and then they're just fine after, like – God, that scene is so brutal. Like, that's what always gets me where I'm like, how could it be them? I know. Like, we're trying so hard to make that guy fit that story. Yeah. And, but why would he? He's just like a normal neighbor next door. And then he just brutally murders his neighbors. And then that's it. Nothing ever weird happens again. Yeah, he never does anything again. I know. Both cases are very much the same in that regard. The crime is so brutal. Although I do strongly believe that Velisca is part of a greater scheme. That would make sense. But and then I mean, because that's all in America. So then you come back to Germany. This guy is originally from From Germany, Germany, comes to the United States, offends for a few years, leaves when they become public knowledge, and then tries to stop but can't. That does add up. He could have also gone in he could if he's German, he could have gone into the war. Could have, you're right. And he could have offended elsewhere, and we just don't know. He could yeah. have left the United States and went to God knows where for a little while and then right. ended up back in Germany right before Hinterkaifeck. True. Wild. Super wild, right? Ugh. Toast. Toast. <laughs> I'm toasting the maid. Mar- oh, Maria Baumgartner, <laughs> that poor baby. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, we will One toast the day. maid. One day. One day. I'm so sad for her. I'm going to toast her and Velisca, Mary Peckham, the neighbor who woke up and was like, shit's gone down. I got to call everybody, including the damn cops. Yes. She was concerned and good, and I like her. 
happen. Ooh, that was a loudie. That was. Um, we we have a new patron this we week. We do. That's why my cheeks were filling with like goodness <laughs> this whole time, like a chipmunk, like a chipmunk. <laughs> I don't know what I was gonna say. I don't know, but I like that. That's yeah. what you said because it's, it's a good one, Lisa Haney. We love you, Lisa. Lisa's been one of our supporters from the get-go. So we love you, Lisa. Thank you for supporting us. We look forward to seeing you at future patron events. And if we trusted the safety of our own warm beds, never knowing that danger was just two staircases away, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. He fucked that bacon.